Welcome to episode 12 of Better with Paul. Now, if you've listened to more than one episode of Better with Paul, you already know what I like to say in the beginning, and that is we have an amazing guest. We have an incredible guest. But let me one up what I have said previously and actually let me set the bar. This episode is the highest honor of my entire interviewing career. Let me repeat, this particular interview is the highest honor of my entire interviewing career of 15 years. And let me explain why. When I was 18 years old, what a lot of people didn't realize at the time was it was the first time in my life that I read a book cover to cover. Yes, that's right. The Paul who today likes to talk about books all the time. At 18, I had never read a book cover to cover. Now, I had read I had read books when I was a kid, but I'm talking about novels. I'm talking about 100 plus pages of a book. Never had I read it cover to cover. Sometimes I'd read a couple chapters. Sometimes I would just skim, but never cover to cover until I was 18. Now, let me give you the story. I was at that time dating this beautiful, beautiful woman who turned out to be my wife later. But at that time, we're just dating. And I could care less about school, right? 18, I could care less. But she was all about her studies. And so we were going out to a movie and she wanted to first stop at a bookstore to pick up some books for her class. So I decided, let me just tag along, right? Maybe I can get her to get out of the bookstore faster so we can get to, to the theater. And so she walks into the bookstore and I decided to kind of just hang out in the front area. And over on a shelf, this was a book that wasn't on display, but it just so happened someone had picked it up and put it back inappropriately, right? So that I could see the cover. Right there on the shelf was this black man with a big smile, beautiful smile, holding a cigar and he's immaculately dressed. And that image itself stood out to me. I had never seen someone looking that smooth, right, on a book. But then the title just reached out and grabbed me. The title was, Why Should White Guys Have All the Fun? Boom. I'm intrigued. I walk over, I pick up the book, and I start to skim the book, right, as I normally had in the past. And I was so interested that I sat down and I started reading the introduction of the book. By that time, my girlfriend, right, then Jill, now wife, but then Jill says, hey, I'm, you know, done uh, looking for my books. Let's go. And she sees me holding this book. She said, hey, you want me to get that for you? And I said, yeah, why not? <laughs> right? Please, you know, get this for me. You know, that, that'd that be great. Right? I had no money, by the way. Uh, ladies, don't date broke men, right? Or actually, ladies, let me say this. Sometimes it's okay to date broke men. Sometimes they change. Uh, but that's another story. So we go to the theater, we get back from the theater, and I decide to start reading the book. So that night, I read about a third of the book. The next day, I read another third of the book. And then on the third day, I read the last third of the book. So I read this entire book in three days. The first book cover to cover that I had read, I read it in three days. And it wasn't just reading the book, but I decided to immediately start executing everything I read. So in the book, Reginald Lewis talked about structure. He talked about mantras. I did all of these things and more. And I'm going to tell you, my life literally changed. If you look at my life, my life was headed at that time when I was 18. It was headed in the wrong direction. Inevitably, I was going to get locked up or die out on the streets. And many of my friends went that way. But this book single-handedly was the inspiration, the motivation, and the instruction for me to change my life around. And I did. And when I look back, I'm so thankful that I walked into that bookstore and I saw that book, but I'm even more thankful that the book was written in the first place. And so because of that gratitude, once my life started to change, I decided to write a letter to Reginald Lewis's wife. Now, I wrote the letter to his wife because at that time he had passed away 
And I wanted to just express my gratitude and thanks for him and his life and, 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 and his business and, and, and his book. And so I wrote a letter 20 years ago to Reginald Lewis's wife, Loida Lewis. Now, fast forward to today. Over the last year, I became friends with Reginald Lewis's daughter, Christina Lewis. Shout out to you, Christina, who's an incredible person. And just recently, Christina emailed me and said, Paul, I would love to set up you and my mom to talk, you know, about my dad's life. And I couldn't believe it. I literally could not believe it. And then within 24 hours, right, I have a conversation with Loida Lewis, the person who 20 years ago I wrote this letter to. Now you could probably begin to see why this interview was the highest honor of my life. In this conversation, which by the way, was a three and a half hour conversation, three and a half hours, because you, you know I had questions, right? We decided, my producers and I, that we would break up this exclusive interview into two parts. And so today you get part one which chronicles Mr. Lewis's life, literally from five years old all the way through to the first acquisition he made. And I'm talking about we unpack his entire life. And Mrs. Lewis is so brilliant in not only dissecting Reginald Lewis's life, but also interpreting the strategies that he used along the way. This is such a special episode. If you are someone who is a fan or interested in the story of Reginald Lewis, if you are someone who's interested in building a billion-dollar business, or you're someone who's just interested in the life of someone who's achieved something historic, this is going to be your episode. So I want you to not sit back on this one. I want you to get the notepad out, the pen, the paper, whatever you use to take down notes, because the following is a masterclass in how to build a billion dollar business. Right after the break, you'll hear from the brilliant Loida Lewis. Yeah. Good to meet you, Paul. It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. Are you, so, are you, so you're ready for me? Yes, more or less. You're in New York, correct? I'm in East Hampton. Oh, in East Hampton. Oh, okay, nice. Very nice. Our summer home. We've been here since May, you know, sheltering in place. Okay, okay. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Are you, um, are you anxious to try to get outside and go somewhere else? We have a six-acre property, so we just walk around. You know, and then walk on the street because it's a, you know, you're the only one walking around. Is there something, someone, a car passes by, a bicycle passes by, you know, things like that. Okay. So isolated. Wow. And, we, you know, today I went to the bank to have my hair done just to be, <laughs> just to look decent. <laughs> and went to the bank. Thank you very much, Lucian. And went to the bank. Excuse me. Cheers Wait. to you, Paul. Cheers, cheers, cheers to you. Here's to my mom. Cheers to you. Yes, yes. You know that it's interesting how you how you mentioned uh, getting your hair done. So I was going to say, so this isn't you every day with pearls and your hair done. Hair. <laughs> I have to prepare for this. Yeah. You know, I have to look good because Mr. Lewis always says, "Loida, you represent me." Oh, interesting. Yes. Interesting. Okay. Okay. Well, we're going to get into all of that and more. So you're all set, Mrs. Lewis. You're ready. You're ready for this. Okay. Now, what I'm hoping too is my wife is searching for a surprise that hopefully I will be able to show you. I've, I've been looking for this all night long, and hopefully I will be able to show this to you before the end of our time together. So we'll see. We'll see. Right. But let me just say, this truly is the highest honor for me. And I know that a lot of 
interviewers like to what we call gas the guest up, right? You like to tell the guest how great they are. And, and a lot of that, quite honestly, are lies. I've been in the interview game for a long time, and I know a lot of interviewers who lie. But I will tell you, this interview is the highest honor of my career. And it's the highest honor because your husband's book, your husband's legacy has changed the trajectory of my life and I believe the lives of my children and my children's children. That's how much of an impact it's made on my life. I would not be here today if it wasn't for your husband. And so I thank you. And I, from the bottom of my heart, I thank you. Thank you. You make me, <laughs> you make me cry. Thank you. This is my honor. What I'd love to do with this discussion is to be able to unpack the life of one of my heroes, your husband, <laughs> right? And I want to do it in a way that perhaps has never been done before because we have the honor of, of having you getting your insight. But this isn't just simply you recounting his life, but you giving us your opinion and your interpretation of his life, which I think is going to be even more special because what a lot of people will find throughout this conversation is that you are a formidable professional yourself. <laughs> you're, you're, you're not just the wife, right? There's, there's a lot more to you. So I want to unpack that as well. But where I would love to really begin, for the people who don't know Reginald Lewis, right? Give us the achievements, just so we can understand how substantial his impact was in the world. I mean, talk, talk to us about the things that he achieved in his life. Well, maybe we start with the biggest one, <laughs> all right? In 1987, 1987, in the height of the recession, when the market fell on December 1, 1987, he engineered the largest, close to a billion dollars, leverage buyout of TLC Trust International Foods. And what is that? 64 companies all over the world, not United States, but international, 64 companies in 31 countries for $1 billion. So that's the biggest one. Incredible. But before that, he was the student that was accepted at Harvard Law School without even applying. <laughs> all right? Without even applying. He's also the first African-American law firm on Wall Street, the first African-American in an Ivy League school where a building is named after him, Reginald F. Lewis International Law Center at Harvard Law School. Why? Because in 1990, he was giving them the largest donation by an individual, $3 million. In $3 million. Wow. Wow. These are big ones. <laughs> These are these are big ones. Can I mention one that I didn't hear you mention, but I often hear attached to him and it upsets me a little bit, right? So what I often hear is you see, you hear Reginald F. Lewis or Reginald Lewis, the wealthiest African American at the time, right? So in the 1990s, he's the wealthiest African American Forbes magazine, if you Google Forbes, uh, original Lewis and Forbes, you'll see he was one of the, the 400 wealthiest men in the United States. But the reason why that rubs me wrong is because he wasn't just one of the wealthiest or the wealthiest African-American men. He was one of the wealthiest men in the world. Just remove African-American, remove black. He was just one of the richest men in the world, period. I'm, I'm interested, what's your take on that? And what was, what was his take on that at the time? Because it was surreal. It, it felt surreal from the outside looking in. Well, I must tell you, when he was young, his goal was to become the wealthiest black man in America. Really? I didn't know that. Well, you know, among ourselves, <laughs> mind, but he mentioned it. He wanted to be the wealthy. Not to me. When he was growing up, 
when he was, you know, in college, you know, we don't talk about to be rich, to be things like that. There are other things to be successful, to achieve, you know, to do your best. Those are the values, not to be the richest man. But I know at the back of his mind, he wanted to be the richest man in America during his time. Oh, wow. I didn't know this. This is breaking news. So so where did that come from? Because I, I know, so he grew up in Baltimore, in Maryland, in the United States. Talk to us about the environment that he grew up in, because he I'm, I'm assuming he didn't come from a wealthy family. No, not at all. Not at all. So Reginald Lewis was born of Caroline, Caroline Cooper and Clinton Lewis. Okay. But somehow it didn't work out. So in the middle of the night, Caroline, the mother, brought the five-year-old Reginald to the grandparents' house. The grandparents, Grandpa Sam and Grandma, already had eight children and two adopted two more. So then, as soon as she came in with young Reginald, five years old, the grandfather started cursing. <laughs> <laughs> you know what it is. Another mouse to feed. And so the grandmother said, bring Reginald upstairs. He doesn't want to hear all of this cursing. And as he was going up, he heard his mother say, don't worry, dad, we pay our way. So very early on, you know, mm-hmm. the spirit of you're responsible for your own happiness. Don't look for somebody else. You take responsibility for yourself. Wow. Wow. It's a pow- powerful story. Powerful story. So when he woke up, Mommy, mommy, she's gone looking for work. So her mother worked two jobs. But always when he, she comes home, he must be spiffy so that, you know, he's playing hard, you know, here and there. But by five o'clock, he comes back home, take another bath, put on good clothes and sit on the doorstep waiting for the mother. And really? all friends will call him, Reg, Reggie, Reggie, come here, come here. You're not finished with the game. No, he would, he would stay there. So he had already disciplined at five year old. That's fascinating. So you're saying at five, he would be playing because, and I have a six year old who, my six year old is wild, Mrs. <laughs> he's, he's a wild one. So, I mean, he doesn't even like to wear clothes all the time, right? But it sounds like, so Mr. Lewis at five already was self disciplined to the point where when his mother would arrive home, he was clean, looking sharp waiting for her. Yes, that's right. So it's the mother and the grandmother giving him the discipline. Okay? Your mother is working two jobs. When she comes home, she doesn't want to see a disabled child. All right? So that's one. The other one is the grandmother. The grandmother loved him. And when she is a cleaning woman, she would be the babysitter. But on certain days, she had to clean this white woman's home. And so she would bring him because she's the babysitter. She would allow, she would see to it that he has something to do, you know, on a corner. And this white lady would say, why don't you ask your grandson to help you clean? And always she said, no, he's special. So at the very young age, he was being given that self-confidence, that self-esteem. He is special. He's going to do great things. So all of this helped him develop his own personality as somebody who can do. Somebody who takes you know, responsibility for themselves. And one last thing, the grandmother had taught him how to save because the grandfather is head waiter, was head waiter salary. But when he comes home, he had all his change and he would distribute it to his young children. And at that time, because he was the youngest one, our uncle was six years older than him. And the youngest aunt is three years older than him. So they would get all the change. And Grandma Sue had cut up a savings bank of a Coca-Cola bottle with a hole on the top, nailed down in a cupboard. And so he would have money there. The spirit of thrift, you have money, save it. Mm. His mother was going to have a birthday. Reggie, your mother's birthday is tomorrow. Do you want me to buy him a gift? Yes. Okay, so I'll get it from your savings bank. Sure. And so when he came home, there was the gift, but all his money was gone. (laughs) (laughs) I can tell you to wake up for money. What is that? Don't spend everything. 
You know, right. you must save. Yes, the gift, but don't take it on. So all of those things are already in him as he was growing up. Yeah. You know, financial responsibility, you know, self-esteem. And oh, one last thing, earning money on your own. So when he was 10 years old, he had a paper route, you know, because Afro-American would give you money if you deliver it in the neighborhood. So oh, oh yes, the Afro, the, the Afro, yes. American the largest, that was the largest newspaper at the, the time. Largest newspaper. It's delivered every Tuesday and Saturday. Tuesday and Saturday. And so he started with the neighborhood, you know, the left, the neighbors on the left side, the right side in front, started with them. And over the course of two years, he was able to bring it to 100 subscribers. Wow. And at wow. that time, you know, it was getting heavier. He was getting into middle school and all that. And he was 12. So what did he do? He sold it to his best friend. <laughs> clever. Let's leverage buy out because there was no down payment. <laughs> you you owe me thirty <laughs> $2.50 every week. So until he got the thirty dollars back. And he was very strict. Look, the deal is you pay me. Why you, you should give me two dollars fifty now and they would fight. Wow. That's a leverage buyout. Just <laughs> He allowed his, his his best friend to buy his the paper route, okay, and pay him little by little. Interesting. This this makes complete sense to me, because in order to achieve extraordinary things in life, you have to be extraordinary, extraordinary. So he was doing things at a young age that were not ordinary, right? I wonder what did he aspire to do. You know, if you think about him at 15 or 16, where many of us, you know, at 15, 16, I was thinking about girls, you know, at 15 and 16. So what were his aspirations, do you believe, at that age? The aunts told me they were together, you know, because the aunt would bring him to Morgan State. You see all of the sons and daughters of Sam and Savila Cooper went to college by GI Bill, by GI Bill, or each one helping the other. You know, so all of them, except one or two, but they went into business. All of them finished something. All right. So when the aunt, Aunt Charlotte, would bring Reginald to Morgan State and they, he, she would take a taxi or somehow, and then they would talk together. And at that time, I think he was seven, seven years old. Aunt Charlotte told me that when they left and she was paying, the driver had to look back. Who is this young little boy? Saying about when I grow up, I want to be a lawyer. Wow. Yes, yes, yes. Wow. You know? Interesting. So Interesting. he was already, even at that age, he was already articulate and ambitious that the taxi driver had to look back and say, who is this little guy? Wow. <laughs> Saying all these things. This is, this, is, this is incredible. But once again, this makes sense. This makes sense. Now, you know, you also mentioned the fact that he wanted to look a certain way. He wanted to look clean, spiffy, you know. It seemed that when I see photos of him in his later part of his career, he's immaculately dressed. You know, when I saw his book, Why Should White Guys Have All the Fun? I think part of what attracted me to the book was that he was smiling, immaculately dressed with a cigar, you know. So that's that dress sense, that look, was that part of, you think, his strategy? Is it's been in, it's been in with him. I mean, when he was growing up, his mother worked with tears and would bring home things. Okay, and sometimes he would say, oh, "No, I don't like that. I don't like that." And then, so his mother was smart enough, so he would say, "Okay, here are things that the buyer told me would look good on you. You see, mom. You see, mom. She knows, <laughs> <laughs> but it was her choice." So the mother has instilled with him. And in fact, she wanted dungarees, jeans. And the mother insisted, no, no jeans, no jeans. Why? Because then you look like a ragamuffin. Mm. Okay? And so it was when grandma, oh, come on, Carolyn. Okay? And the grandmother bought him finally jeans, and he was so happy. (laughs) Even from there, he knows that the mother is very strict on how his comportment of how he looks. And so that carried that on. So when he can afford it, 
tailor-made suit from Ceruti, you know? So, yes, yes, yes. He was very, yeah, he was, his dress sense was excellent, excellent. Yeah. Hermes, so, Hermes Thais. Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I saw it. I saw it. Monogrammed everything. Was it, his underwear was probably monogrammed. I mean, he, <laughs> he, he was he was on top of things. So walk us through. So he's in school. So he goes to uh, Virginia State, correct? The first Dunbar, first Catholic school, because his okay. mother was very proud to tell everybody, you know, my I, I send my son to parochial school. You know, in the inner city, there's public school, which is free, and parochial school, which is not. She was very proud that he was going to a parochial school. But then to go to high school, he said that he didn't make good grades. But really? In high school? In the high school. No, no, no. A parochial school. Okay. It's up to grade eight. Oh, okay. So you have to go now. And I think at that time, 1950s, it was still segregated. And so you cannot go to the good parochial school. You have to go somewhere else. So he went to Dunbar. And even at that time, he made due diligence. What public school is good, has a good sports because he loved sports. He played uh, baseball. Yes, baseball, everything, football and all that. So he said, Dunbar. Dunbar is very strong in political science, sciences, and sports. Okay, so that's, he chose it himself, grade nine. Going to grade nine, he was already doing due diligence. Wow. Look at that. Look at that. So he he decided where he wanted to go. Yes. He did right. the, the due diligence. For college, though, he ended up at Virginia State. Is that correct? Yes. Virginia, Virginia State. Okay. Yes. Which, which, by the way, Virginia State is in Petersburg, Virginia, yes. where my wife came is from. from. Yes. Oh, and nice. my mother-in-law taught and was a dean at Virginia State University. Oh, wonderful. Yes. So yes. Virginia State, because he was the quarterback in high school, they gave him a scholarship. Ah, okay. Okay. So, you know, they have he has five brothers and sisters all going to school. And the father was working with the federal government, stepfather this time, Federal Gene Fugit. And the mother was working in the post office. So they take turns. So he knew that he has to take care of himself. So by a football scholarship, scholarship free at Virginia State. Yeah, which incredible, incredible. So he's at Virginia State. He's playing football, but he's also, you know, obviously he's focused on his academics as well. No, 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 no. No. First, you have to be a good athlete. But by that time, somehow, I think he hurt his shoulder. So he can't really throw now. So he got dropped. After the first year, he got dropped. So you have no scholarship. Mm. So now he decided, all right, I have to finish. So he had to work. And so he divided his class so that certain days he would be able to go out and work and certain days is school. And so he wrote down his schedule, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, 7.30, wake up, you know, 8 o'clock, whatever, all the way down to lights out. And then below that he wrote, to be a good lawyer, you have to work hard, exclamation point. So it's like he programmed himself that he's able to maintain going to college, finishing it in four years, and at the same time, excelling academically. Absolutely. Yeah. And what that taught me, because that was one part of the book that really hit home. And that was, you mentioned, to be a, a lawyer, you have to, was it excel? What was the, the phrase? To be a good lawyer, you have to work hard. You have to work hard. So to be a good lawyer, you have to work hard. That, to me, was his mantra. And so that was a mantra that he set. So he was already programming himself to know, I'm not just going to be a lawyer. I'm going to be a good lawyer as a result of working hard. And I will work hard as a result of this, this schedule. So he has the schedule. So he has the schedule. He has the mantra, future-looking. So how in the world does a black man, right, at that time, in which we're, we're talking, what, 1960? 1965. 1965. He was graduating. He was senior now. 1965. We're in the, in the throes of the civil rights movement. Exactly. Exactly. 
in the South, right? We have Virginia State, which is in the South. How in the world does he then get accepted into Harvard Law School without applying? How, how, does, he, how does he do that? 1965, the height of the civil rights movement. So Harvard Law School had Frank, Professor Frank Sanders, the Nazi, who escaped Germany and came to first London and then United States. And so in his mind, how do I get, how do we join this movement? And what are they good at? Not rallying, not going out in the street. They teach law. And so for Blacks, for African-Americans, very few are lawyers because they don't have father who are lawyers. So what do you do? Expose them to the law. And at that time, they devised and wrote to all of the historically black colleges and universities, send us your best students for, send it to us, basically a junior who is going into the senior so that when they come back, they will talk about, oh, we were at Harvard Law School. The law was great, etc. All right. So when Reginald saw that, he said, I'm going to Harvard Law School. And everybody, his, his roommates, what? You're not even qualified. You're a senior. You're leaving. I am going. And so what did he do? He campaigned and pestered the professor who was going to give out the names, only four. And so he was finally, you know, what is it? A squeaky wheel gets going. Yes. Pestering him every time he, I have here my essay, okay? And look, I got this grade, you know. So the, the professor included him as the fifth. So he wasn't even supposed to be there. But he was so persistent, they included him. So he got into Harvard Law School. Now he told himself, all right, I have eight weeks to stand on my hand. That doesn't mean he's standing on it. That means that you give it your all. So this is, was an eight-week summer program. So it was a conditional program that he had to excel in in order to be accepted into the No, program. no, no, no. No, the rule is that this is not for you to enter Harvard Law School. This okay. is for you to think about becoming a lawyer, and apply anywhere. It doesn't mean that you are going to Harvard Law School. But Professor Sanders told me, Reginald was so so brilliant, especially during the moot court. He himself, Professor Sanders, had to tell the admission officer, you've got to accept Reginald Lewis in Harvard Law School without applying. Wow. Yes. So, So So when he went back home, he got, because he said in the end, I just tried my best. It really doesn't matter if I was, uh, you know, allowed to enter Harvard Law School. For him, he did what he did. And so when he got that call from the secretary, are you Reginald Lewis? Yes. You are accepted to enter the class of 68. <laughs> yeah. Accepted without even applying. Without even applying. No LSAT. And so when he arrived at Harvard, he was told, okay, you have to fill this up, this application. Pardon the interruption, guys. I just wanted to very quickly tell you about something special that I'm creating as a result of this interview. I've decided to launch my very first book club. And the first book that we're covering is none other then why should white guys have all the fun? How Reginald Lewis created a billion dollar business empire written by none other than Reginald Lewis and Blair Walker. Now, if you have an interest in joining me on this journey as we dissect the book and we also have a very, very special guest at our closing event, I want you to join me at paulcbrunson.com backslash book club. That's paulcbrunson.com backslash B-O-O-K C-L-U-B. The book club is completely free and it's all about us inspiring, motivating, and instructing ourselves to live a better life. I hope you join me. PaulCBrunson.com backslash book club. And now back to the episode. You know, at Virginia State, of course, he didn't have enough money, so there would be tuition to pay and they hounded him or, you know, they would not allow him to take exams, things like that. Harvard, they ask you, do you have enough money? No. Mm. Okay, you can borrow. So they gave him a loan of 1500 And what an investment. Because 20 years later, he returned it back with $3 million. Good job, Harvard. Good job, Harvard, yeah. on that investment. Yeah. So, so one point of that story, though, that I want to pull out is 
you mentioned that the professor lobbied on Mr. Lewis's behalf because he was so exceptional, in particular at moot court, which I know in moot court, to a large degree, the skill there is oratory. Yes, you must be able to speak, logical, you must be comporting yourself, you're even-tempered, and you're strong, you're acting like (laughs) (laughs) Yes, but but every characteristic that you've talked about from he was five years old basically built itself to that moment. That's the reason why he was able to excel. So he then obviously goes to Harvard. Does he, does he perform well at Harvard? He must. You know, he would tell me he was so intimidating at Harvard. So intimidating. Why? Because the teacher would talk about Irish history, what's happening there. And there would be somebody who knew everything about Irish history. Any a science, somebody there had studied science on how to the cell works. So he said he was intimidated. But Harvard has this, this group that you come together and you discuss the cases among yourselves so that when you go to class, you're prepared. Okay. So he had a group, multiracial, meaning to say it was not the group of just blacks. He had white friends. And one of them had remained a very good friend, uh, Bill Slattery. He's that's obviously Irish, you know, because after that, they both joined the legal services. You know, it's extracurricular. And okay. after that, they would go to their house. He was married then to a nurse, Jill, and they would continue the discussion. And, and develop. I'm so glad that you mentioned that because notice how I automatically said, oh, he must have performed well. But thinking this is a kid from, this is a, a kid from Baltimore who probably at that point hadn't traveled, right? Hasn't done it. And, and now he's in a completely new environment. This is the first time that he's probably in a predominantly white environment because Virginia State is historically, it's a black college, right? And so that makes sense. He was intimidated, but he rose to the occasion. He continued to fight. And he seems to me to be a fighter, right? He rises to the occasion. So wait, while he was in high school, he continued to work. And his grandfather said, okay, for the summer, you work here in the suburban community a Jewish private club. And so there he already saw how do the rich act? Mm. Who knows how to recognize value? You know, so he, and he was listening, you know, he was a bus boy, you know, at, at, uh, you're 15, 16 years old, you, you carry the dirty dishes, but he hears stories. So already he had the concept of how white people, rich white people act. And he yes. recognized who of these men know value and who of these men do not? Because he was in charge of the card room for senior citizen, ladies playing cards. And he would really bust his chops. And then the woman in charge would just give him $2. So he said, uh-uh, you don't recognize value. I gave you service and this is all you gave me. But in his mind, this was already making that as a high school student. Wow. So, so do you think it was at 15 that he made that decision that he wanted to become the wealthiest person in the world? Probably, yes, probably. Because seeing the disparity, being in a suburban private club, seeing all the, you know, rich Jewish clients. So he understood there is a way in the United States, there is different life. And so in his mind, that's where I want to be. Interesting. Now, I have a question, right? And the reason why I ask this question is because, are you familiar with code switching? So code switching, in particular in the black community, right? Well, we we may talk a certain way among only black people, but then when we're in an environment with say white people or others, we'll then talk differently. So we'll switch the code, right? We'll we'll, we'll talk different. I wonder, he was, because I think he's from Baltimore, right? A lot of my family's from Baltimore. Right, I can't. I can't even understand them to this day. <laughs> right, my family in Baltimore. So you got you have Baltimore. He went to Virginia State, this all black school in Virginia State. He then goes to Harvard. Did he ever talk to you about literally just the language difference, the vernacular? Did did was that ever a, a topic? Because I'm no, fast- no, no, no. But I've seen him now that you tell me about. I've seen him code switch. <laughs> of course, he kept up trash. <laughs> among his close friends, black. Yeah, he was trash. I've seen it. He doesn't have to tell me what it was. Now that you're to me, 
I saw it. Of course. <laughs> of course. Of course. Yeah. He yeah. knows what to do in what situation he is. Yes. In the situation where he is, he can speak. He, he knows opera. That was Virginia State. Meaning to say, he knows to be where they are. And he watched. He has a good friend, Sam Peabody, who is the Peabody of, you know, the Brahmin of Boston, of Massachusetts. And so they would have lunch and he would observe and he would ask him, how do you do this? How do you do that? Like a mentor of how do you act that you were born with a silver spoon in your mouth? So he's mm-hmm. always watching. Okay. okay. Yeah. And, and, and then you mentioned, and he had mentors. So did he start to identify his mentors coming out of Harvard? Is that really where? Absolutely. Absolutely. Even among Harvard, his friends were not just black. They were white. Okay, they became good friends in that study class. They became very good friends. Why? Because it's dealing human to human, man to man. Okay, not color to color, you're black. No, no, you deal. When you talk, when you become friends with people of other nationality, of other ethnic group, then you understand we are all the same. We want the same things. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So, So then he leaves Harvard. He passes the bar, I'm assuming. Nope. Right. Nope. No, 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 but he was in Paul Weiss, you know, true blue. I mean, the blue, you know, corporate law. I mean, it's one of the top law firm in New York. What's important that I remember is that he demanded equal treatment because to the other white associates, you know, like him, they would call Mr. Corman, Mr. Smith, but with him, it's Reggie. No, you call me Mr. Lewis. And so even now, when I talk about him to strangers, he's Mr. Lewis. He's Mr. Lewis. This makes sense. This makes sense. Yeah. I, and, and I like that he spoke truth to power at that point, And he demanded that respect because you have to demand respect in, in certain situations. So he is now an attorney at a top corporate law firm in New York. Is this when he meets... This lovely lady in his life? Is this what he meets her? <laughs> yes, yes. Oh, yes. All right. Yeah. All right. I came from the Philippines, obviously, from my accent. I was born in the Philippines. And my father was like him. His, my father's father died when he was 12. And so his mother couldn't take care of three boys. He was the oldest. So he lived with a rich uncle in Daet. That's in the Bicol region. This uncle was very entrepreneurial. He had a movie house. He had a gasoline station. He had uh, insurance business. Just very, very uh, entrepreneurial. And that's where he was in high school. But in his mind, he's going to the best university, the Harvard of the Philippines, University of the Philippines, and study law. But by the time he was already in law school, at 21 years old, he started his business of lumber. And so he not study. And he became very successful. We had a furniture company. But he said, one of my children, we're five, will be a lawyer and will do, you know, all my dreams of becoming a congressman or whatever it was. And so he selected me. I'm the first girl. Two boys before me and I'm the first girl. And I guess because I was the more articulate, the more daring, you'll be the lawyer. So when I became a lawyer, I passed the bar, go around the world with your mother to pick up your sister at, in New York. She was studying at Columbia University for her master's. Okay. And so we arrived in September. And she's graduating in May. So what do I do? Work. Of course, I had the tourist Oh, this makes sense. You get a job. And <laughs> tourist visa, I don't want just to wait and you know count my fingers or go shopping. Or... So I looked at the village voice then, help wanted. And then I saw... Civil Rights Research Council needs administrative assistant. I said, there I go. So in my application, I said, I am a law student. Why? Because if I said I'm a lawyer, you're overqualified. Right. That's true. You won't stay long. Okay. So I was accepted as the administrative assistant. And then I introduced my sister to my boss, Ray Glover, classmate of Reginald. And so when they were going out on a date, Loida, do you want a blind date, double date, double date with your sister and you and a blind date? I said, sure. Why not? <laughs> Venture. 
you know, we're here for an adventure. We're going back. And that's when I met Reginald Lewis on a blind date. On a blind date. How about that for a successful blind date? Now, 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 I, I have to ask, it's a, it's a blind date. You are a Filipino woman. You are matched with a African-American man. What, what, what was, I mean, what was going on in, in your mind at that point? And this is, and what year is this too? This is? 1968. 1968. I mean. December, December 8th. December 8th. December 8th, 1968. You are on a blind date with a black man, right? So what's going on in your mind the moment that you see him? Well, you know, you for me, I was raised, uh, thank God, my father, because he was poor, the way he raised us was never distinguishing people, oh, he's rich, you go there. She's poor, don't go with her. No, she, he really, my mother and my father raised us to treat all everybody equal. You know, yes, he's African-American, but you know, wh what is that? <laughs> what, 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 what really was good on that first meeting was that Whatever thing I say, he has something to say. And whatever he has to say, I have something to add. So we really had a conversation nonstop on that first date. Wow, wow. Okay. So well, I have to tell you, because he was black, I was going to talk about, you know, the black men that I know, like John Joe Lewis and things like that. He immediately stopped me and he said, I'm international. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Hey, I'm international. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. What is that? Don't treat me like I'm a black man. I'm international. And sure enough, 20 years later, he bought Beatrice International and <laughs> in Paris. Wow. I, I absolutely. Now, you know what's going to happen now, Mrs. Lewis. You know how many men are going to be using that line now? <laughs> hey, hey, I'm international. I'm international. All right. So, so, so clearly it was a great first date. And I want to get into the details of your relationship, if I can, in a moment. But let's keep going on his career now. So he's an attorney, at this great firm. What's his next career move? All right. Although he was not, you know, his grades were not like stellar at Harvard Law School, there is one subject that he had an A+. Plus. And what was that? Mergers and acquisition, corporate law. Yes. You know, securities law. Okay. So Louis Laws is the sort of like preeminent scholar on corporate law. And so when he wrote his thesis, I, I, I'm so sorry I lost it, but he wrote a thesis that he got an A+. Plus. The first line, in order to be wealthy, you must do merger and acquisition. I don't do it, you know, right. I can't remember it now, but it's always, that's the first line, merger and acquisition. So what does that mean? If you really want to be wealthy, don't start a company because 90% fail. So why would you bet on something that will fail? Buy a company and create value. So in his mind, he was a very successful lawyer. You know, we had all the trappings of a, of a you know, successful middle class. We had our own brownstone in Chelsea, in Manhattan. We had a vacation home, three-bedroom in East Hampton. All right? We had a foreign car, uh, Mercedes, 450 SL, top-down. <laughs> <laughs> I know that. Yes. Okay. Yep. But... He was thinking higher. As a lawyer, you only have 24 hours to bill your clients. There's a limit. Okay, of course, if it's good, you know, you have, uh, you know, you, you can get a little more. But in business, the sky is the limit. Yes. And so in back of his mind, buy a company. Buy a company. So very successful businesses, but always there's the trial to buy a company. Okay. Okay. Was so that was the next move. That was to buy a company. Buy a okay. company. Yes. 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 Sadly, the first company he wanted was Park Sausages. All right. That's from Baltimore. You remember? Yes. You were too young, but we remember it. More Park Sausages, Mom, please. <laughs> I've heard that before. I have heard that very early on. So he bought it. 
and he had the money in his briefcase. He was able to raise the money, $3 million. But by the time he came... I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, Mr. Lewis. You're, you're saying that... So he, he, so he raised $3 million. Yes. And, 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 but but how, how does he do this? Wait, let me see. Not that he raised $1 million, but they sort of agreed that he would be able to buy it for $3 million. Nothing in writing, but he agreed. So he was raising it. And he, he had it. Meaning to say, it's not in the bank. But he was able to... And when he came to call them back, it was sold to somebody else. Mm, mm, okay. But I would imagine that process emboldened him, gave him more confidence, I can do this. Because he had to first convince the company to sell at that price. Then he had to go out and try to get the commitments, the $3 million. Okay, so that company goes, but then what? where's his next company that he goes okay. after? All right, next company, while he was practicing law, but on the side, he would look at companies and he wanted to buy radio stations. And somehow before he could get the financing together, you know, it was sold again. Mm, okay. Now, okay. third failure around 1974, 78, he found a furniture company in Los Angeles. Okay. They're selling it because the owner was 60 years old. He has been doing it for like 18 years. And his partner wants to cash in. And so he had his furniture company and he was able to, after 18 months of going to Los Angeles, coming back, sending flowers to his wife for, for birthdays, getting a job for the daughter in New York, all of that. So he was finally get this man to sign a contract to sell to him. And, wow. Yes. And he was able to get Financing, $8 million in the bank. $8 million. All right. I'd love to unpack this a little bit. So this is 1978. Yes, 78. That's right. That's 78. right. Okay. Yeah. 78. So, and that was 18 months of working that deal before. Okay. What was the year roughly that he tried to buy Park Sausages? When was that? 73, 74. 73, 74. Okay. So let's say it's, it's five years in between, roughly. And he had this idea of gaining wealth through mergers and acquisitions in the earlier, in the 60s, when he was in school, right? No, no, no. Because he graduated in 68. This is, we got married in 69. In 69. Okay. Okay. He left Paul Weiss and started his own law firm. Ah, okay. So he starts his own law firm in 79. So between roughly 72, he's, he's running his own law firm, but he's looking for companies to buy. And he doesn't successfully buy a company until 78. So now we're talking about really six years in there. What do you think pushed him to keep going? Because he, that clearly that was his vision. That was his dream. Acquire a company, buy a company. And he tries for one, it's unsuccessful. He goes to another it's unsuccessful. He goes to another many years later. He needs 18 months to work the deal. What kept him going after the vision? And the reason why I, I ask this is because so many entrepreneurs who are listening, who are watching right now, have a vision like Mr. Lewis had. They have a dream. They're told no once. They're told no twice. And maybe they give up. Or they're told no three times. Maybe they give up. What do you think kept him going those six years? Why? Why should white guys have all the fun? He's all these white guys buying companies. Why can't he do it? Why can't he do it? Okay, so that's one part. But the second part is he knew how to prepare himself. Okay, you're a lawyer. You must be a successful lawyer. And what bank should you use? J.P. Morgan. At that time, J.P. Morgan had local banks. They were, you know, like Citibank, like Chase Manhattan. His law firm opened a, a business account with J.P. Morgan, Bob Walters. In order to buy a business, you need financing. Who will finance you? A bank. Yes. All right? So you, you prepare all of that together. So during this time, yes, he's practicing law, doing very well, okay? But again, his mind is in order to become really rich. Right. You need to buy a company. You need to buy it. Create value. I see it. And he's building the relationships, those key relationships, like at JP Morgan, yeah. right? I'm sure he's expanding his network as well. 
which allows him to raise more money. Yes, yes. It makes sense. What's the word hustling? Hustling. Always hustling. Always hustling. Every day I'm hustling. Every day I'm hustling. A calling card, always with his calling card, giving it out to everyone as a lawyer and creating network, creating network. Yes, yes. Okay, so this makes sense. So he finally buys a company, and you said it's, but it's a furniture company. Furniture, leisure, <laughs> leisure company. Very big margins, very big margins, you know, because a furniture company is like tubes, textile, and then a factory, and then you sell it at great price, you know, yeah. 1,000 margin or whatever it was. Very good net cash flow, very good cash flow. All right, I love it. So he bought the company, then what does he eventually do with the company? No, 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 no. The furniture company, okay, he had 8 million in the bank. He started to have second thoughts because there is an employment contract. You know, Mr. Lewis have never run a furniture company. So you need the manager, the owner to stay with you for three years just to get the hang of it. Sure. And so in my mind, the lawyer had a change of heart. He didn't want to work for a black guy. Even the black guy is giving him $8 million. Mm. The day of closing, he started to say, well, Reg wanted me to keep two books, one for IRS and one for ourselves, which is a lie. So you, you know, with the temper of, what? You bleep, bleep, bleep. <laughs> bleep, bleep, you bleep, 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 bleep. Oh. That was the code switch right there. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> There you go. You know, everybody knew. His lawyer, you know, Charles Clarkson, the banker, they knew the deal is done. You cannot continue with this deal when the owner doesn't want, you know, is breaking it, telling a lie and breaking it. Wow. So that deal was lost. It was lost. The deal deal broke at the end. Oh, my goodness. So now what does he do? What does he do? I didn't know this until I read his book. Until I read he was close to a nervous breakdown. He never told me, but he was close to a break as a breakdown. Because when he came home in our brownstone, you know, our bedroom is up on the top floor, he said he felt the walls were closing down on him. Mm. Okay. His work of 18 months down the drain. Right. Okay. All of the I'm sure countless resources, money spent. Our money, yeah. our money you know. Our money, including putting up, uh, well, anyway. All right. So next day, the lawyer calls him. Reg, Tamlamilla. Reg, you know he defamed you. Because when you tell somebody a lie in front of everybody, that's defamation. Yes. Okay? To the bastard. (laughs) So the lawyer writes a very strong letter to the owner of this company. And blah, 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 blah. He settled. Big amount. Ah, uh, he settled to include the sale of the company. No, 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 no sale. No, no. By that time, the, the bank, Chase Manhattan, you know, they are, they are saying, no, forget that. And what did we do? Do a down payment for a summer house in the Hamptons. <laughs> I like it. Yes. I like it. Yes. I like it. Fourth of July. We leave at seven and we arrive at midnight. Oh, my goodness. Okay. But even then, when we, just the air is different. And when we woke up, hmm, this is the Hamptons. Uh-huh. So on that weekend with Leslie, our seven-year-old, we would say, can you just take care of Leslie? We're going around looking at homes, looking at homes. And we probably saw maybe 30 homes, not during that weekend, but the next weekend. And we identify this house, beautiful three-bedroom, double-height ceiling, mm. in the forest. Okay. Beautiful. And so he said, it costs this much. Okay, so we were trying to haggle and all that. Okay, I'll give you your price, but leave everything there. Leave the furniture, leave the, you know, the plants, except bed sheets and towels, everything. <laughs> and so we closed in end of July, and we had it for the rest of the summer. <laughs> but not, not only is that, like a beautiful story, but it sounds like that was important for his mental health to be able to just get out of the city, get clean air. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Which is good. And that's where he said he started to heal. 
Why? Because it was so painful. This is the third deal. He failed. Three times he failed. So it's not like in, in my mind, because the guy was racist. He didn't want to sell to and work for a black man. Okay? But he didn't want to point, oh, this one, this one, this one. He pointed three fingers to himself. I am doing something wrong. To have the humility to say, three failures, right. it's not their fault. They're soothing that. And so he started to read the book, Prospectus, of companies that being sold, being bought. He's reading it like a novel. Ron Perelman, you know, Sir Jimmy Goldsmith, all of that read. And then he understood. Why every weekend we would be in East Hampton. And so he would there be reading and all that. And as he was teaching Leslie how to ride a bike, she was seven years old. Yes, Leslie like this. And in his mind, I got it. I am doing something wrong. I am doing everything myself. My law firm is my lawyer. My investment manager is myself because I found the deal. I closed the deal. My accountant is myself because I knew economics. You know, he studied economics. So I knew, you know, how to read the balance sheet and all that. And all of these successful buyouts have their own lawyer, have their own accountant, investment mm-hmm. outside. So they are invested in me. They're invested in the deal. Because the deal. if the deal doesn't go, you don't get paid. This, this, is, this, so this is a massive inside tip. I think this is a this is a, a very important strategy because the what what allowed this strategy to happen is first for Mr. Lewis to be introspective to say three deals didn't work what am I doing wrong even though clearly at least one of them was he was dealing with the racist he still had to say what am I doing wrong so he had to self evaluate so there's self awareness there's self evaluation then he had to go out and learn. So you said he's reading these prospectuses. He's understanding companies who are being bought. How are they being bought? And he's studying that, studying that, studying that, studying that. Then he applies what he's learned to now change his strategy. That's that's substantial. That's substantial. Also, roughly how old is he at, at this point? He was born in 1942. By 84, he buys McCall Pattern Company. Wow. So not until 84. Okay. So, so that's four, six. So he's 42 roughly at that point. This, this is also, I think a major point. And quite honestly, when I think back to Mr. Lewis's story, I always think, wow, he, he was probably worth 400 million when he was in his thirties or what he's, no, he's not, he's, it's, it's not until he's 42 years old that he really now makes his mark in terms of leverage buyouts at 42. This is big. And he's had three major losses at this point. Okay. Take, take me home. Take me home. So we're now, it's, it's 84, right? He's now remantled. He has a team. It's not just himself. Who are we looking to buy right now in 84? All right. So I don't know what, when it happened, but McCall Pattern Company is part of the Beatrice deals. One of the big conglomerates was acquired, leveraged buyout, meaning they borrowed all the money to buy General Foods. And one of General Foods' company is McCall. You know, it's a conglomerate. It has nothing to do with food. Okay, so they are going to sell so that they can pay down the debt. But what's important there is totally leveraged. Now you can't do it. But they want him for a $22 million deal. They want him to put up $1 million. It's impossible. You know, you're a working, successful lawyer. You don't accumulate $1 million in assets. Right. We have our vacation house, but that's not $1 million. So where do you go? J.P. Morgan. (laughs) J.P. Morgan, who has his account since 1972 when he went out on his own. Wow. That is another part of the story I didn't know. And I'm glad that you walked me back to the fact that he in 72 decided to begin to build the relationship with JP Morgan strategically, knowing he would need them at some point. And now here he is needing them. uh, What is this? You know, like, I don't know, over a decade later. Yes. His best friend, his best friend. You know, he always asked, 
you know, some of the people are too scared to ask or too proud to ask. He always asks, and his best friend, now which bank? He is working, the best friend, Cliff Christoph, is working in Citibank as a manager. But he said, go to JP Morgan. And that's uh, okay. He borrows the one million from JP Morgan. Well, actually, 500,000. Ah, yeah. all right. So, so, so let me make sure I'm following this. So McCall, it was a 20, $22 million buyout. They needed 1 million in cash. He got 500,000 from the bank. Yeah. Okay. And then, mature, no collateral. No collateral. Yeah. The other 500,000, he has 500,000. No, no, no. He has been all these years is the lawyer for AA Mesbic. African-American minority investment companies. AMS be created by President Nixon. Oh, okay. Black capitalism. So he has been, you know, their lawyer. All of, anyone who wants to buy or sell or sell and buy and borrow, okay, he was the lawyer. So he went to Equico. That's equitable insurance. They set aside a certain amount of money and the government gave them three, three times. Okay, so they had capital to invest. Ah. So they said, but 13% interest a year. Very high interest. Yes. Very high. But he took but he took the deal. He took the deal. 500000 they lent him. So he had $1 million in cash. Wow. So he has $1 million in cash. And now everything he... else was raised by a Burstern's. Okay. And now he has finally purchased his first company. Yeah, Mr. Lewis, that's what I'm talking about, right? He purchases his first company, and this is 84. 84, correct? 1984, yes. 84, he's 42. So 42, he gets his really first big win. First big one. First big win. So I now know. what happens? Yeah. Now what do we do? And there you have it, the end of part one of my interview with Lloyda Lewis. You could tell at the end of that episode, I'm amped, right? Mr. Lewis has just made his first acquisition. He's 42 years old. He's getting ready to get into the groove. So in part two, you're going to hear about the other acquisitions that Mr. Lewis made and how he was able to create a billion dollar company. What's also going to be of interest to a lot of people in part two is Mrs. Lewis is going to break down their relationship. That's one theme that you know I like to talk about with the interviewees because we don't live life alone. And I believe that the strengths of our relationships are sometimes indicative of our professional strength. And so you're going to get a chance to hear how Mrs. Lewis was able to maintain a relationship with someone that she considers not just an A personality type, she considers him triple A, someone who is ultra, ultra, ultra ambitious. So join us on the next session for part two of my exclusive interview with Lloyda Lewis. Sweet and bored.